We're going to look at Psalm 105 tonight. Psalm 105. Uh, if anybody took opportunity to read through it, let's switch things up a little bit because uh, I feel like we always start with the first thing. Uh, any repeated thoughts that you noticed in the psalm? Okay. Okay, so God's grace seems to be a theme. Okay. Are there any words or phrases that we see coming up multiple times? God's greatness is definitely a theme. Uh, I'm thinking of like a specific words maybe that we might see. So for example... In verse 5, it says, the judgments uttered by his mouth. Do we see that phrase, uttered by his mouth, or speaking elsewhere, or word elsewhere in this psalm? Okay, so look at, look at verse 8, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Verse 9, his oath. Uh, verse 10, there's this covenant that he's made. So there's God has spoken a promise, okay? And then we see in verse 19, his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Verse 27, there's this idea of God's works full, connected with his words. His wondrous acts are performed among them. Verse uh, 28, they did not rebel against his words. Verse 31, he spoke. Verse 34, he spoke. Verse 42, he remembered his holy word. So, as I read through this psalm, that was the phrase that's one of the, the main phrases that stood out to me is this idea of God spoke and then God fulfilled his word. And God fulfilled his word through all these works that he did. And so, um, while the works are certainly very important, and we see them recounted in great detail, I think one of the important unifying things in this psalm is maybe this idea of God speaking these promises and then all his actions based on them. But then there's also a degree of our response to God, I feel like. So, like in verses 1 through 3, there's this idea of addressing God. So give thanks, make known, sing, sing, speak, glory, be glad, seek, seek. In verses 1 through 4. And then in verse 40, there's a turning to God in the wilderness. They asked. And then verse 43, his people are brought forth with joy, with a joyful shout. And so sort of bracketing the psalm is this idea of us praising God for all these things that he's done. But in the middle of it is all the things that God has spoken and him fulfilling it. Uh, so then, as we go down through and look at some of these poetic devices, I just want us to think about those things in terms of um, how they support those themes. The reason why I think that's important is I think I felt like sometimes when we've gone through it, and even for myself, if I just look at the figures of speech, it's sort of like these random things, it's like a puzzle with all the pieces just thrown in the lid and we don't see the framework or the structure of it, whereas if we have sort of a theme to organize it on, 
and then we see something like, let your heart be glad, then there's a figure of speech that's supporting that idea of us praising God, us speaking back to God, uh, as opposed to just sort of a generic um, feel happy kind of idea. Um, so I obviously mentioned the one in verse 3, but then verse 4 where it says, seek his face, what is that? Uh, what's the idea of seeking God's face continually? What's that getting at? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wanting God to be favorable toward us. Okay. Uh, verse 6, he addresses seed of Abraham and sons of Jacob. What's the, the idea for that phrase? What's that representing? Covenants, uh, people of Israel. Okay, good. Uh, so covenant is an interesting idea to pick that up because Genesis 12 uh, and I think the reason that I'm thinking about this is I just looked at in Galatians 3 and 4 where it talks about uh, Genesis 12, 7. Uh, Paul makes the point, and the promise is made into your offspring, which is Christ. And so there's the idea of covenant, but it's a covenant with his people Israel, who are the descendants of Abraham. So uh, in this case, probably less Paul's point that the ultimate offspring is Jesus and more the idea that it is the people of Israel with whom God's made a covenant. Okay. Good. Uh, verse 7, when it talks about God's judgments are in all the earth, what does that mean? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Potentially an idea that people are expected to, you know, sometimes we have sort of a narrow focus, only the Israelites had to follow God in his ways, but there's an expectation that all the earth is under obligation to seek after God and follow his ways. Okay, good. Uh, verse 8 talks about the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Um, we could theoretically take to a thousand generations literally, but what is it potentially referring to more? Yeah, either all time or a re at least a really long period of time, right? So, but yeah, yeah. So it, well, if it says he's remembered his covenant forever, the word to a thousand generations, he's basically saying far beyond our scope and capacity to, to understand. Uh, verse 14, where it talks about he reproved kings for the sakes of his people. In what way did he reprove the kings? And, and what, did, what's, what did that look like? Like, what actually happened? Like, how did he humble them? They would die. Okay. Okay, yeah. So defeat in battle or disease or being overthrown, uh, he humbles, he reproves the kings, okay? Verse 15, when he tells them, don't touch my anointed ones. What... It's a little stronger idea than sort of the thing that kids do in the back seat of the car, don't touch me, you know, that's my space, that kind of thing. When he says don't touch them, he's, it's more of protection, right? So, like, you can't harm them. Uh, verse 16 is a fascinating expression. He broke the whole staff of bread. So what was a staff symbolic of? Yeah, so if it's Probably not a shepherd's staff, but more a staff connected with authority. 
And so if he breaks the whole staff of bread, and in the context of the verses there, they're down in Egypt. Um, but if he breaks the staff of bread, then the kings are powerless to overcome this famine that he's brought into the land. And he uses it for to humble them. Um, then he talks about Joseph in verse 18. They afflicted his feet with fetters. Does that mean they afflicted his feet? Yeah, they bound him, they locked him up, he couldn't go anywhere. Um, verse 19 is also interesting. It says, the word of the Lord tested him. And the him is most likely Joseph. And what does it mean, the word of the Lord tested him? Okay. 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 Yeah. So think back to his own dreams, right? God spoke to him, here's your future. When he's in Potiphar's house, when he's in prison, doesn't seem particularly likely. So God's word is testing him both whether he's going to believe the promises that have already been made to him and the things that God's going to say come to pass in the immediately near future, uh, which when you put it in that context, you think about the fact that he's standing before Pharaoh and just very bold and direct with Pharaoh. Uh, I think we would be tempted to sort of grovel or take credit more than we should. And Joseph just says, you know, here's what God's said is going to happen. It's going to happen. And I don't have to worry about God's going to sort it out for me on my behalf. Um, Verse 23, when it says Israel came into Egypt, I think there's a little bit of a word play here, but what do, you, what do you see is going on there? Yeah. It, it's funny to me because Israel is both the name of a man and the name of the group of people that are coming with him. And I think he's using it in the latter sense, but there's a little bit of play on words because, yeah, so... Um, so they come down into Egypt. Uh, verse 24, it says, He caused his people to be very fruitful. What's, what's that sort of a, a euphemism? Not in a bad way, but... Multiplied. multiplied. They had a lot of kids. They prospered everywhere they went. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They prospered their livestock, their people, their land, all of these things. Uh, verse 25, when it says, He turned their hearts to hate his people. Who's, what's, what's going on in that phrase? Okay. Yeah, and this is really interesting because I don't think we... Mm, sometimes we feel like it's a natural consequence that people just get suspicious of other large groups of people multiplying in their land, and it's just sort of a natural process. But this shows that God actually intervened in a way to bring this about. Again, going back to the idea of his sovereignty. Verse 32 is very picturesque. He gave them hail for rain. So they, they had hail. It rained, down it rained hail on them. Yep. Okay. Verse 36. When he struck down all the firstborn, what's that mean? Okay. Literally that he killed them, right? Uh, verse 37. It says he brought them out with silver and gold. Who's the them and what's the silver and gold? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then verse 41, when they get out in the wilderness, when it says he opened the rock. Yeah, it's a miraculous provision of water, okay? Yeah, the second time around, because he got mad and hit it, right? Okay. So what kind of psalm is this? Yeah, praise. What's that? Yeah, I think praise, um, going back to what we've talked about before, I think thanksgiving tends to be very specifically uh, almost like personal narrative testimony kind of thing, uh, at least in the way that we defined it way back when we first started going through the Psalms. There is certainly a degree to which this is thanksgiving to God, but I think broadly praise, there's a lot of elements of it being kind of a, a recounting historically of what happened with Israel. Um, Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, maybe. I could, I could see an argument be made for that. Yeah. I think Song of Trust would be a legitimate option. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty clear that it's not a lament. It's not so much a wisdom psalm because there's not this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. It's not so much like a kingly covenant kind of psalm, like the king does blank. It's more like the people of Israel generally. So I think song of trust potentially. Good. Okay. Uh, what big truth about God do we see here? Okay, keeps his promises. Okay. Yeah. What about us? If we were to go to the commands in the psalm, what's it basically commanding us to do? Okay, you know, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but is there a verse in here that says believe God's word? I think that would be an application of some of the principles, but what the specific commands that it gives like in verse 1 through 4. Uh, yeah, so seek God and praise God. So I guess believe God's word would be a necessary component of that. My point is just like, what really specific thing is it actually commanding us to do? There's direct call to action. Speak of all his wonders. Make it known about his deeds. Yeah. So there's really more of an evangelist. Yeah, or at least an admonishing fellow believers in God, remember God and all the things he's done. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Good. Let's walk through it here quickly together. I don't know how many of you like history or. Um, if not, broadly speaking, other people's history than recounting your own history. I think we tend to do that at family gatherings, at Thanksgiving, Christmas, those sorts of things. It's interesting the way that we will sometimes embellish stories or, or change them a little bit uh, to put ourselves in a more positive light or to make them more exciting. 
not very exciting if your fish was like this, right? A lot more exciting if you caught a huge something or other that's like this, right? Um, it's not very amazing if you ran two yards and scored a touchdown. It's a lot more impressive if you ran 50, right? Compared to two. Yeah, well, realistic goals, I suppose. Uh, my point is, with what we see here, if we are speaking of the works of God to other people, we don't have to embellish anything of what he's done because they're pretty amazing and astounding, and so we have opportunity to speak of them. And so I think the two main ideas here are to speak of God's word fulfilled in God's works. We see this in verses 1 through 4 and also the second half of verse 45. And then the second big idea is to remember God's works resulting from his words, and that's sort of the content of what we're telling people about. So speak of God's word fulfilled in God's works. First of all, verse 1, give thankful worship to God as you proclaim him. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. And I think that's particularly appropriate as we get to a time of year when we tend to think more about being thankful, though we should year-round, that we give thanks to God, but it's not just, you know, society, it looks like this. I'm thankful. Great. To whom about what? Right? Because this, this empty sort of sentiment of thanksgiving is pretty pointless if it's not directed towards someone about something. And particularly insulting to God when it's just directed to people around us or to uh, much kind of mediocre things, right? And so in contrast, we're supposed to give thanks to God about his deeds among the peoples, and we're supposed to tell people about them. So there's, going back to what we were saying a few moments ago, sort of this evangelistic component to it. Well, the second thing in verse 2 is to sing praise to God as you speak of him. So give thanks to the Lord, tell everybody about the things that he's done, thanksgiving for that, sing praise to him as you speak of all his wonders, which I think is sort of the idea that we get in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, that uh, sort of as God's word saturates our lives, it spills out in praise to him. And then the third thing is to glorify his name gladly, glory in his holy name, be glad in him, uh, we've talked about this before. Sometimes it's easy to say God needs to be praised, but sort of have maybe a little bit of a grudging or a... Life is hard as a believer because the world is opposed to those who follow God and because they're suffering in trials and difficulty. But there is a significant portion of being glad in God and His works that I think is easy for us to get sort of down and discouraged because of the chaos of the world around us and to forget that we can be glad and rejoice in God and what he's doing. Um, verse 4 is this idea of seeking God all his time. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his, seek his face continually. This is a really important one in the context of a society that's constantly distracting us. Um, I don't know about you, sometimes there's apps I have to uninstall from my phone because they're just too distracting, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever else. If you have something like that that is distracting you and you're not doing this seeking God's face continually, regularly, constantly throughout the day, take that off, put something on that will remind you, hey, here's a truth about God, or hey, go read your Bible, or hey, here's a song you should think about, some truths about God, something along those lines 
because we're supposed to be seeking God's face continually. And then if we jump all the way to the end of it in verse 45, there's this phrase at the very end, praise the Lord, sort of at the, sort of to bookend the entire psalm. So the, the verbs in this psalm are speak, we see that in 1 through 4, speak in praise, speak in thanksgiving, speak in glory and in his name, speak in the way that we talk to God and seek him all the time. But then also remember, verse 5 says, remember his wonders. And then it sort of goes from verse 5 all the way down through verse 45. Here's all the things I want you to remember, people of Israel. First thing, God made a covenant with his chosen people. We see that in verses 5 through 15. Starts out by proclaiming his word in verses 5 through 7. Uh, he, he uttered marvels and judgments. His judgments are in all the earth, verse 7. This is addressed to the seed of Abraham, to the Israelites. Uh, not only did God proclaim his word, but then he remembered his covenant. So you remember God's works, a primary aspect of which God remembered you and the promises he had made to give his people the land. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, I'll give you the land of Canaan as your portion. Before they get there, so God proclaimed his word, he remembered his covenant about the land, and then he protected them while they wandered before they ever got there. You were only a few men in number. You wandered from nation to nation, permitted no one to oppress you, and he said, do not touch my anointed ones. Think of all the times when the entire trajectory of the nation could have been wiped out. Any of the run-ins that Abraham had with Abimelech in Canaan or with Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, all the things to the trouble that Jacob got himself in, if Esau had killed him, or if Laban got angry with him and attacked him after he sort of uh, tricked him, all of these things. The, the fate of God's people is in this hugely precarious position in the early years, and even later on, and yet God protected them as they wandered. So God makes this covenant with his chosen people, proclaiming his word, remembering the promise about the land, protecting them while they wander. Then, as we transition to Egypt, God provides for his people there too. So, verses 16 through 36, he calls for a famine upon the land. Famine in Canaan, famine in Egypt, famine across the known world. But before he does that, he arranges circumstances. I, this is something I've thought about from time to time. God gives a vision of greatness to a teenager who's going to tell it to everybody with the result that they end up hating him so that he ends up in Egypt and has time to train before the famine comes and God needs him to be right there in that place in that time. Right. And again, so many things could have gone wrong. Joseph, you're an insufferable little brat, and they killed him right then and there. Or they tried to kill him later. And then, of all people, his older brother intervenes. And they're like, ah, let's just sell him to slavery instead, because that's so much better. At least we won't have to look at him either way. And, and God puts him in exactly the right place. So God sends Joseph to Egypt to prepare the way for the famine he's going to send to Canaan. We see this in verses 16 through 24. Joseph is a slave. Joseph is tested. Then the king releases him and makes him lord of his house and gives him all this power. And then Israel comes down to Egypt, and God multiplies and blesses them there. So God is paving the way for all these things, as he provides for his people in Egypt. So the first thing of God's words, he makes this covenant, and then he protects them. He makes this covenant, and then he provides for them. And then the last thing is that God delivers his people out of Egypt through the wilderness. 
We see this in verses um, uh, 37 down through 45. He plunders the Egyptians to enrich the Israelites in verses 37 and 38. They all have silver and gold. There's not one who stumbles. Egypt was glad when they departed. They're literally saying, take everything in our bank accounts and every, all of our clothes and get out of here before all of us die. That's how urgently they're pushing them out the door, which is um, amazing because Pharaoh has been in this mode of you can't go, you can't go. Some of you can go. A few of you can go. You can go, but not the animals. You can go, but leave your families here. Like all of these games that he's playing with God, when God says it's time for them to go, the Egyptians are literally like putting them in the car, shutting the door and saying, get out of here. Uh, God, well, yeah, the cart. There you go. God leads and provides for them through the wilderness. Cloud, fire, quail, bread, water, all of their basic needs. Was there a lot of complaining? And the psalmist is not ignoring those facts, but he's focused more on God's generosity than on the people's bad attitude, right? And so God provides for them all through the wilderness in verses 39 to 41. And then he pauses and he says, what's the reason for God's kindness to them? God is faithful to his covenant. Verse 42, for he remembered his holy word, with Abraham his servant. We'd expect it would be, he said, I will do this for the Israelites, and I stays with them. But he goes all the way back to Abraham. He says, because I made this promise to Abraham, you're going to end up back in the land of Canaan. Kicking and screaming, as it were, the older generation dying off first, the younger generation still being half-hearted in their pursuit of God. God still accomplished what he said he was going to do because he had made this promise way back when to Abraham. Quick aside on the subject of covenants. I was talking about this with the 8th graders today because Paul says a lot about covenants in Galatians. And sometimes I think unhelpfully, people have talked about covenants primarily in a framework of are they conditional or unconditional? And then people get into big arguments. Did God abandon his covenant with the people of Israel because they broke the terms of the covenant? I think it's more helpful for us to think about the covenant in terms of the character of the people involved in it. So to use marriage as an illustration, God betroths and weds the people of Israel. What we've seen in Hosea, they run off after all these other people, these other men, figuratively the nations, the gods of the nations. God continues to pursue the people of Israel and bring them back. Which sounds like God still believes the covenant is something he's going to uphold. Right? And so instead of saying, oh, well, Israel broke the term of the covenant, Israel sort of activated the punishment clause of the covenant. If you think about what it says in Deuteronomy, if you obey me, here's the blessings. If you disobey me, here's the curses. It doesn't say, if you disobey me, here's the curses, and then I'm done with you, right? And so instead of thinking about this covenant that God made with his people as primarily being conditional or unconditional, we should think about it the context of a faithful God who pursues his unfaithful people to accomplish the plan that he's unfolding down through the ages. And so from that framework, the church cannot replace Israel, and Israel cannot escape God's purpose, no matter how rebellious and wandering they are, 
because God has both anticipated their every move and prepared the way for what he's going to do next to deliver them, whether it's with Joseph down in Egypt, whether it's David after Saul leads them into a kind of apostasy, whether it is after Ahab leads them into another apostasy, in comes Elijah. God has anticipated and prepared all along the way for the way that he's going to fulfill his covenant. And so instead of having the short-sighted view of God's covenant that he made this promise and then Israel messed up and he's like, too bad, guess I have to start over. God has pursued his people faithfully down through history. And we see sort of the end point of this particular focus of the psalm in verses 43 to 45 when it says, He brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them the lands of the nations to take possession of the people's labor so they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. There's sort of this optimistic note that this ends on. They are in the promised land. God has given them their inheritance, taken it from the nations. God basically describes it this way. The people in Canaan, they're like the hired servants tilling the ground until the owner shows up. And then he's like, all right, now my son's going to inherit it. Go away. So if God had sent them down to Egypt and wiped out all the people in Canaan, what would have happened to the land? Desert, wilderness, chaos, worthless, right? But they're cultivating it, growing it, all these sorts of things. The people of Israel get there, and they're describing the amazing uh, fruit of the vine and the harvest and all these sorts of things. That's specifically that way, both because God had mercy on the people of Canaan and because God left the people of Canaan there to prepare the way for his people Israel. And so we again see God's plan unfolding and there's this note of optimism, rejoicing, and, and here's why God did this, so that they would keep the law. Now, jumping over the New Testament for a moment, just because I was just teaching on this earlier today, what happened? Did they keep the law? No. Can you and I keep the law? No. Who kept the law perfectly? Jesus. And so, verse 45, as optimistic as it is, as much as that was God's goal for his people Israel, they never lived up to it. But Jesus did. And so not only do we have this segment of history to speak to people about all the mighty acts in Egypt, and we're like, we wish we could go back there and see the plagues. That would be amazing to see God smite the nation, right? We have something greater in the fact that the, the, the end point of Israel getting out of Egypt and getting in the land was so they would keep the law and they failed. We have seen Jesus who has kept the law, and we can see and speak to people about that, as well as all the things that God did among the people of Israel. So if anything, we have more to speak about God keeping his promises. We have more to speak about God's mighty works. And we have more uh, responsibility on us if we don't, because we have so much more. If they had this much to speak about, and we have all of this to speak about, how can we not speak about it? And so Psalm 105, I think, was admonishing Israel, but by application to us, to speak of God's word fulfilled in God's works on behalf of or for God's people. So what does that look like for you and me? How many people this week have you talked about what God has been doing in your life or what God has done in the history of the world? or what God wants to do in people's lives. And if we're not, this psalm, I think, would say, 
we need to praise God by speaking of Him to other people, along with worship in church, worship Him during the week, speak of Him to the people around us.